Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Today we're concluding a brief series that uh, we wanted to start 2009 with, uh, the last four weeks, and that is the heart of worship at St. Andrews. And we started with uh, looking at uh, God's Word as our foundation and uh, that which we uh, see all truth. And then we looked at uh, God's gift of the sacraments to us. And last week we looked at uh, a passion for worship and uh, the priority of worship. And today we're going to look more specifically at uh, what we do here and why we do it. But once again, we begin with God's word and Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips And my eyes, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom? Shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's my privilege this morning to introduce someone who doesn't need an introduction. You see him. Uh, up here, and you've seen him all morning. Somebody uh, said, I guess you have the day off, Hundale. And uh, in some ways, I felt like it with uh, Mark doing his usual things as well as bringing us the Word of God. Some of you may not know uh, some of Mark's credentials. He's a bachelor in music and a master's uh, in music in church music. Now, the reason I point that out is because that, that kind of a master's degree really puts one foot in a master's in terms of the music part, but also the other foot in the seminary in terms of the theological framework and training there, uh, much of the very same training uh, that I went uh, to, except I didn't have the music part. Uh, Mark was called to the ministry as a teenager. 
and he was ordained to the gospel ministry in April of 2002. Those are all credentials, and those are wonderful, but I wanted him to stand before you today because of who he is and what he means to our worship here. We can't hardly talk about the heart of worship at St. Andrew's in terms of what we do here without him. You see, he's, he's not the choir director, though he is that. That's not his title. It's not limited to that. He's not um, the music guy that uh, some may say, though he handles the music. But he's uh, deliberately, we changed his title to Director of Worship and Arts because of his involvement and his passion for worship. And so I wanted you to hear from God's word uh, through him uh, as we talk about the heart of worship here at St. Andrews, why we do what we do and uh, what that framework really is. So, Mark, will you... Bring God's word. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this privilege. We thank you that you seek those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray, Father, that you would use your weak vessel this morning to express in your words from your scriptures the heart and passion of worship of your people. Inspire us this morning to love you more and to serve you better, as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It is my great privilege and awesome responsibility to plan our weekly worship here at St. Andrews. In this duty, I gladly position myself under the authority of our pastor and the session. While I've been given a great deal of liberty in my preparations of the service, Dale and I, as well as the other pastors, work very closely together each week as we prepare this guide for the worship of our people. This planning and preparing is my most cherished vocational passion. And much of my time and energy are spent in this part of my job. This morning, I'd like for us to explore why we do what we do in the structure and elements of our worship here at St. Andrews. Unfortunately, it's easy for us to get into a rut, isn't it? And to simply do things because it's the way we've always done them. Or because it's just what we do here. Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 that the Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. When Paul was addressing the confusion that worship had caused in the Corinthian church, he said, I will pray with the spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with the spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. It is clear that God wants our entire person, body, mind, and spirit, involved in our worship of him. It is crucial that we understand why we do what we do in the worship of our great and mighty God. After understanding how we worship, we'll look at who we worship. So where does the format for our service come from? 
Well, as good Reformed Presbyterians, we would tell you that the Word of God is our only authority for life and practice, and so it must come from there. Well, yes, it is based in the Word of God, and we'll see that this morning. However, there is no order of worship given to us in the New Covenant. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection completed and ended the sacrificial system of temple worship that is found in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, we are given the elements of worship in various places. We see in the book of Acts and many of the epistles, these give us a glimpse into the worship practice of the church. We know that when the church gathered on the first day of the week, several things took place. They prayed together. They observed the sacraments. The reading and preaching of the word, collection of offerings, and singing. With these elements as the rudiments of our worship, the prescribed order, the time of day, the place in which we meet, the furniture, all of this was left up to the discretion of the church. These elements then would have certainly been placed in some sort of order, however, something logical for the participants. Those in charge would have had a reason for the way they put the elements together. As you move about our church and meet new people and learn, learn about one another, you have no doubt discovered what I've discovered, that we are from very diverse backgrounds, aren't we? Some have church in their past. Others are first-generation Christians. Those of you who did grow up in the church, it's a huge variety of backgrounds. Many from the Protestant tradition, in addition to Presbyterians, there are Folks with Methodist backgrounds, Baptist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Charismatics, many others. Some are from the Catholic tradition. Country churches and city churches, traditional and contemporary, liturgical or spontaneous in form. So our worship here at St. Andrews may have been a very new thing for you. And yet I would suspect that all of us have found something in the overall structure of what we do here in worship that is familiar. In a careful study of historic Christian worship in all of its forms, one sees a common thread. Christian worship across all denominational boundaries most often begins focusing on who God is. Then it transitions to God dealing with us through his word and culminates in a sending out and commitment, renewed commitment to God and his work. Does this strike a chord with you? should. Listen to how Brian Chappell, the president of Covenant Seminary, puts it. Corporate worship is nothing more and nothing less than a representation of the gospel in the presence of God's people for his glory and their good. One more time. Corporate worship is nothing more and nothing less than a representation of the gospel in the presence of God's people for his glory and their good. So what happens when men and women have a transformational or gospel encounter with God? What happens? Think of your own life and your own experience or those that we're given in the scriptures. First, we see God for who he is in all of his glory and perfection. And then what happens after that? That causes us to see ourselves for who we are, sinners in need of his righteousness. But then he saves and restores us. And we respond in thanksgiving. He makes us useful in his kingdom, and we respond in commitment. Whether it was Paul on the Damascus Road, Moses at the burning bush, 
Mark Rattray at the moment that God grabbed my life, or Isaiah, as we see in our passage this morning. Let's look at this again. What was the first thing that happened to Isaiah? The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah saw God in all of his glory, majesty, and holiness. He even heard the hymn sang, our hymn this morning, based upon this very text. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, then what happened? Isaiah responded. How did he respond? Woe is me, I am undone, I am ruined, I am lost. Isaiah was no match for the holiness and perfections of God. Neither are we. God didn't leave Isaiah groveling in the dirt, though. The very next second, the angel went to the altar as a symbol and metaphor, grabbed the coal from the altar, came to Isaiah, touched his lips, and said, Your sin has been atoned for. You've been forgiven. That had been enough. If it had ended there, we would be beneficiaries of God's grace, and that would be enough. But God, in his mercy and loving kindness to his people, doesn't even end it there. Isaiah is lifted up out of his sin. He's restored anew to God. And then God asks the question, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Who will do my will? And Isaiah responds in commitment, here am I, send me. The Lord delights in using his people after he saves them. So now take a look this morning at our worship guide. Take a look at the way the elements of our worship are categorized. You'll see centered, bold print in all caps. We have a time of preparation. Then our worship begins with praise, transitions into renewal, and we finish with commitment. Corporate worship is nothing more and nothing less than a representation of the gospel in the presence of God's people for his glory and their good. Our order of worship is a clear picture and weekly reminder of what he has done for us every time we gather together to worship. The various elements in worship, music, prayers, offerings, calls, confessions, responses, the preaching and reading of the word, are positioned according to this gospel structure and are the vehicles of our dialogue with God. He speaks to us through his word, and we respond to him. At St. Andrews, we've taken things a step further, and we order the elements according to the theme of the day. This approach isn't necessary for worship to take place, but it provides continuity and gives the service a specific direction and focus. I'd like to briefly look at our elements in our service in order to have a better understanding of why we do them and what they are. Announcements. The most important, right? Since Sunday worship is the only time the family is all together under one roof, we have to take care of some housekeeping. We put this prior to the start of worship because while it is important for us to communicate these things to you, and it is important, we do not see this as an integral part of our worship of our great God. The prelude. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that tomorrow, when you check the mail, 
you see an envelope of very fine stationery. You pull it out, and in the upper left-hand corner, you see a very interesting return address that grabs your attention. There's a seal, and next to the seal it says, The Office of the President of the United States, Washington, D.C. Well, of course, immediately you think, oh, this is junk mail. But then, a political ad or something like that. Then you open it up, and you realize it's not at all. It's an invitation. Our new president has invited people from around the country to come and share with him what's on their heart, to give him feedback, and you have been selected to be one of those individuals. You get 10 minutes with the president in Washington, D.C. What do you do? Well, preparations begin, don't they, immediately. You make your arrangements. You get your flight together. uh, You check your wardrobe. Ladies might be going to buy a new dress, men a new suit. You make sure everything's right. You make your preparations. You arrive in D.C. a day early, no doubt, at least. Perhaps you've toured some of the sites, but, boy, you make sure you're back in your room in plenty of time to change, take a shower, be fresh, look the part. You begin rehearsing what it is you're going to say to the president in those 10 minutes that you have. What is on my heart? What is important to me? How am I going to express this to him? You head over to the White House plenty early. Go through all the security checkpoints. You get into the area that you're open. But before you do that, you decide, wait a minute, I better go to the restroom and check one more time. You check your tie. You make sure you're straight. Ladies, you're put together and that you're going to make the best presentation that you can. You head to the waiting area the Oval Office, and you wait there, and while you're waiting, you're thinking through, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I want to make this the most valuable visit that I can make it. Option number two. Okay, I'll go see the president. Pull something out of your closet. Maybe it's iron. Maybe it's not. You head to D.C., you get there, and you decide, boy, I'm in D.C. I'm going to check out the site. So you head towards the mall. You begin walking up, on the, up and down the mall, and before you know it, you look at your watch. Oh, my goodness, I've got to get there in 10 minutes. So you start hoofing it, and if you've walked the mall, you understand what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, the sweat is profusely coming down, and, and you're just a mess. You arrive at the White House. You're barreling through the, the, the check-in and, and getting through the security. You finally arrive to where you're supposed to be, and it's two seconds to spare. You're on time. But you haven't thought a thing about what you're going to say. And you look a mess. The president comes out. He's not impressed. You can't even put a sentence together. And before you know it, the 10 minutes is gone. When you think back on it, you think to yourself, what a wasted opportunity. We come on Sundays to commune with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and his family. The prelude is your opportunity to prepare for that meeting. Come early. Be ready to worship. Read the scripture of the day in the surrounding context. Try to connect the dots and find the theme of the day. Look over the hymn text, the prayers, the creeds. Pray and be still before our God. Our worship begins with praise. Seeing God for who he is in his holiness, his perfections. Our call to worship invites us. It is the word of the Lord. It's always scriptural in nature, almost always from the Psalms. It is an imperative. Come, worship the Lord. 
Sing to the Lord a new song. Come bow down in his presence. An imperative that calls God's people from his own lips to come and join in worship. It can be done in a number of ways. The pastor can step forward and read a psalm text from the scripture. The choir can use a scripture text to call us to worship. We often have a responsive call to worship between you and I. There are many ways in which this can be performed, but the point is it is the word of the Lord calling us, gathering us together as his people to worship him for who he is. We transition into a hymn of worship. We answer the call by joining our voices in praise of God for who he is and all of his glory. And again, the focus is upon his attributes, who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, his greatness. We're then led in prayer, an invocation, and in prayer of adoration, a prayer in which we ask God to meet with us. We invoke his presence, revealing more of himself, asking him to reveal more of himself to us in our worship, and we praise him again for his attributes. This is often followed by the Lord's Prayer or a confession of faith as we did this morning. These items, again, continue to remind us of who our God is, whether it be the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Shorter Catechism, a variety of things in which we not only profess our faith, but we join together collectively with the universal church and with the historic church in proclaiming what we believe and why we believe it. The choir will often at this point lead us in a worship, something called worship and song, which keeps our focus upon God and who he is. The choir allows us to enter into an aesthetically beautiful picture of who God is. Far from being passive listeners, we should make their song part of our own heart's worship. Then we transition into renewal. Renewal is acknowledging who we are in light of who God is. We confess our sin and dependence upon him. Often it will be a confession of sin corporately from the scriptures or a prayer of confession about who God is. Those are often followed by words of encouragement, an assurance of our pardon, a scripture that reminds us who we are forgiven in Christ and what he's done for us. Sometimes the choir anthem will come at this point in the worship service, as it did today, a choral confession where the choir anthem text focuses more, not so much on the praise of God, but our response to that and who we are in light of what God has done. This is also the place in which we observe our church ordinances and things that we carry out in our church, the vows that are, that are made and said in this sanctuary. Baptism, officer ordination, new members, mission reports. These two are not for us to watch, but to participate in. Be reminded of your own vows, your own baptism. Pray for and support those that are presented. Personally, I find these times in our worship to be some of the sweetest and most meaningful for me. Our officer ordination installation being the most recent. I found myself greatly moved as I saw these men who were going to be our leaders sharing their vows before our congregation and our telling them that we would support them and that we would submit to their leadership. We are a family at worship. And as we hear the vows and commitments expressed through the individual lives in the corporate body of Christ, it should move us and it should involve us in worship. Next week, we will be observing baptism. Be sure you are engaged in these spiritual acts of worship. The pastoral prayer reminds us of our need and dependence upon Christ. Pastor Pointer leads us in praying for our president and our government, 
those that are in authority over us, for our community, for our church and its ministry, for those that are suffering and who are ill. It's a reminder of our need of him and our dependence upon him. This is always followed by a response from the congregation in form of a hymn of confession or assurance in which we express to God the assurance that we have in our salvation. We know that he's going to answer these prayers. We confess to him our belief in that. Many of the elements of our worship change from week to week. We may confess our faith using a creedal form one week and confess our sin corporately the next. The choir may sing a song of worship one week and a choral confession of faith the next. But the overall structure is the same. Commitment. Sometimes our second hymn is a hymn of commitment in which we consecrate our lives afresh and anew to God's service. We tell him that we are, here am I, send me, as Isaiah did. Then that's always followed by a response, which is typically and traditionally the doxology or the Gloria Patri. And in this we again connect ourselves with the historic church and the church universal. This is also a hymn to the Trinity in which we acknowledge Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we respond in thanksgiving for what God has done in renewing our lives. And the offering, this is always musical in nature. It is a time for us to be still and focus upon our response and commitment to Christ. It should be so much more than the collection. We should put our entire selves into that offering plate as it's passed, as a response to who God is and what he's done for us. It is an opportunity for you to recommit your life to Christ every week. Our course of preparation is a transition that helps us to focus our hearts and minds on being receptive to the word of God. And then we have the scripture reading of the day. This is God speaking to his people in his most direct form. We set it apart by our response. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It sets the scripture apart as being special. And we respond in thanksgiving for God giving to us his word. The sermon is God's message from his word for us through his servant. Again, we should be completely engaged, not passive, allowing the word of God to change our hearts and mold us into the image of his son. We respond in commitment with a song, proclaiming our desire to serve afresh and anew in the week to come. And we finish our service with God's blessing, his word that is his good word to us as we go out to serve. As our pastor says, receive it with delight as children of our Heavenly Father. Who is the object of our worship? Pretty obvious, you may say. Many debates and issues about worship would be solved, I think, if the focus were who we worship rather than how we worship. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, 1942 to 1944, gives us this definition. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind by his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up 
in adoration. Did you notice the focus upon the attributes of God's character? Worship is not about us, the creature. It is about him, the creator. When you come to worship, what is your mindset? What are you expecting to happen? Are you hoping to get a nugget out of the sermon to take home with you, or to be inspired by the music, or to be encouraged by your friends? These things may happen, but they're not the reason we come. Christians worship God not to receive an experience, but to enact a service. Worship is participatory, not passive. As Dale reminded us last week, Mary poured out her most valuable treasure in all of her life and metaphorically her whole being for no other reason than the uninhibited worship of Christ. She didn't come expecting anything in return, and yet I ask you, do you suppose she received a blessing for her act? You know she did. And that is the paradox, isn't it? We come to give to the one who has no need, and he in turn opens the doors of his treasure vault to lavish his riches upon us. I began this point by saying that many of the issues surrounding worship would be solved if the focus were upon who we worship and not the how. Let me demonstrate what I mean. I often hear statements along the lines of, shouldn't our worship be evangelistic or seeker-sensitive? Psalm 43 says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This psalm begins with a testimony of salvation. Many of you know it by heart. The psalmist is saved and he's taken up out of the miry pit, out of the bog, and his feet are set upon solid ground, upon the rock, and God establishes his way. And then God implants a new song into his heart. When God saves his people, he gives them something to sing about. This song is a hymn of praise. Did you notice? It's a hymn of praise to God. But others will see this powerful worship and they will turn to God. Evangelism can be a byproduct of true worship, yes. Imagine for a moment someone outside the church coming into a service like this one in which several hundred people are passionately worshiping God unreservedly with all their hearts raising the roof with their singing, having the joy of the Lord upon their faces. Would that be a witness to the onlookers? You bet it will. Some call this doxological worship, or doxological evangelism, rather. As our worship points to the greatness of God, it is, by its very nature, evangelistic. Some might say, I come for the preaching. Singing and music aren't really my thing. Or, the music is what speaks to me. I check out during the preaching. The music might be good, but it's not my style. It's not contemporary enough for me. Or, it's not high church or classical enough for me. In all these concerns, who is the focus on? Me. Be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, some of the theme verses for the worship and arts ministry here at our church. You see the emphasis there. 
We worship him and in the process submit to one another. Corporate worship is one of the most beautiful things we do as the body of Christ. We join ourselves together to worship our Lord and Savior. Worship is the great equalizer. As we walk through these doors each week, it is though all of the things that define us in this world are peeled away. Individuals who outside of these walls have very little in common all of a sudden become unified for one purpose only, to worship the one who has redeemed us. There are no divisions of rich or poor, young or old, male or female, saint or sinner. We are simply the redeemed body of Christ. What could be more beautiful than this? John Wesley, in the preface of the Methodist hymnal, posted, I love this, the rules for congregational singing. Here are three of them. Sing all or everyone. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you will find it a blessing. Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sing the songs of Satan. And to think Wesley didn't even know anything about karaoke. (laughs) Above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually. So shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve of here and reward when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. I've heard some say that our worship here on this earth is a rehearsal for our eventual worship at the throne of God. I would go a step further and say that our worship is at the throne of God. The scripture teaches that God inhabits or dwells upon the praise of his people. When we gather for worship, we are in some wonderful and mystical way entering into the worship of heaven that is continually taking place. John gives us a glimpse of what worship looks like in heaven in the book of Revelation. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshipped. When we join together as the body of Christ to worship our great God, may we lay aside our inhibitions and service him with passionate abandon. 
May the good news of grace and redemption be our weekly reminder of who we are in Christ. And may we leave here with a fresh desire to serve him with a new song of the Lamb upon our lips. May those we come in contact with see this worship in our lives. And may they trust in God too. Let us pray. Our Father, you know our hearts. You know our desire to worship you in all of your fullness and glory. Enable your people here to put aside those things that would hinder our worship, to join together as the unified body of Christ, and to exalt you as our Savior, our Redeemer, our King. Enable us, Lord, in this worship to be a testimony to those around us of the greatness of our God. Use us in this way and bless us. We pray this in Jesus' name.